Are we in a recession? Are we ever going to see one? Well, I dive into that deeply with Benjamin Levine. We get into much, much more about the overall macro economy, the current numbers, some of the cracks underneath the surface like the job market and much, much more. So stay tuned for another action-packed episode. But as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast should not be taken as financial advice. Benjamin and myself are not financial advisors, and we are simply speaking on this for entertainment purposes only. And if you're listening, go ahead and hit that subscribe button to get this wherever you get podcasts. All right, enough for me. Let's get into the show. Whoosh. What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I've got the man, Benjamin Levine, in the waiting room. He's the Chief Investment Officer at 3D Capital Management with over 20 years of investment investing experience. So we're going to go into a lot of things like the current state of the market. Are we in a recession? Are we not? Uh, the jobs report that just came out and much, much more. So be sure to stay tuned for another action-packed episode. But first, Big shout out to my sponsor, Iaho Armored Vaults. Bob Coleman and his team have been putting in the work to bring you the lowest margins of any single uh, precious metals dealer in the country. And they uh, allow you to access the precious metals market unlike anybody else. So be sure to check them out at goldsilvervault.com in order to uh, you know get started investing in the precious metals. All right, enough from me. Let's get Ben up here. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Of course. So for those who don't know you, why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction of yourself and uh, kind of how you got to where you're at today? Sure. Well, thank you. I currently serve as the chief investment officer for 3D Capital Management. We are a registered investment advisor, but we also operate as a service platform for independent financial advisors that are looking for a turnkey solution to handle much of their front and, and mid and back office needs. Uh, so we work primarily with other financial advisors, although we manage some direct money ourselves. Um, and so our key offering really spans from investment managed models to um, handling custodial interactions, paperwork processing, accounting, and so forth. So we like to pitch ourselves as sort of an all-in solution for the independent financial practice. I started my career on the institutional consulting side back at uh, Southern California and Wiltshire Associates, uh, a top tier uh, pension consulting firm. And then I made my way over to the East Coast uh, to work on the buy side, uh, first for a quantitative investment firm where I served as a portfolio manager and researcher. Uh, that's where I got a lot of my factor, back, factor research background. And then I transitioned over here on the retail side from the institutional side to work with uh, 3D Capital and many of the uh, financial advisors and their day-to-day -day needs. So I feel like I have a pretty broad coverage of the investment marketplace, both on the business side as well as on the investment side. Yeah, that's all great stuff and absolutely excellent experience. But I'll, I'll start it off quick, right off the bat. Where do you think we are in this cycle? Do you think we're in a recession? Um, if so, why or why not? I don't think we're in a recession, nor did I think we were going to be in recession at the beginning of the year. Um, but what I try and couch my own perspectives is, is what is the market saying versus what are my own personal perspectives? 
And if you kind of look back throughout the course of the year, at the end of the year, or at the beginning of this year, it was pretty much a broad consensus that we would be in recession uh, by the second half of this year. And that obviously hasn't uh, panned out. And, and during the height of the regional banking crisis in, uh, in March with the fall of Silicon Valley Bank and Synchrony and other banks, uh, the concern was is that we'd face a major credit crunch that would force the Fed to hit the brakes on fighting inflation and the uh, potential slowdown in lending and credit um, uh, availability would be enough to tip the economy over in a recession. Well, that hasn't happened because uh, in response to initiatives taken by the Department of Treasury, as well as the Federal Reserve Facility to set up backup backstop facilities to handle deposit outflows from the banks, um, that situation was stabilized. So. Here we are now in August of 2023, and we're finally starting to see the signs of a slowdown, not a recession, but a slowdown. And the big debate right now is, is can the Fed thread the needle in terms of being able to um, uh, have a soft landing with respect to labor market conditions, with respect to an, an inflation slowdown without impairing demand or economic growth? And... Um, and, and so for those who still think that the economy is weakening, that, our, that, that we're eventually going to face a recession, well, that timetable has been pushed out. So rather than a recession occurring later this year, uh, it's expected that the recession will occur sometime in the latter half of next year, probably around the election and so forth. I think um, what, what uh, many of us and economists, many economists have have missed is uh, a couple things. One is just the momentum from the cumulative effects of the pandemic level of support that we've seen uh, both on the fiscal side and as on the monetary side, whether you're looking at the fiscal impulse from, from uh, post-pandemic emergency spending, from uh, all the infrastructure legislation that's been passed, as well as the uh, sharp rise in money supply or M2, that is now showing signs of a decline, but but keep in mind we're coming off of very high peak levels in both. So we're likely going to see continued uh, contraction in the money supply. Likely going to continue to see a slowdown in the fiscal impulse, especially with the November elections coming up. And so that points towards a slowdown, but but not necessarily contraction. So long-winded answer uh, saying that no, I don't see we're in a recession, nor do I think we're going to be in the recession in the near term. I wouldn't be surprised, though, that, that sometime maybe after the elections the next year, we finally start to see that uh, major slowdown or, or perhaps a contraction in demand. Yeah, and that's all very interesting. And, you know, it, it does seem like we're kind of floating along and it seems like there's, uh, you know, the, the narrative is there's a potential credit event that might happen. Uh, but, you know, in the in the interim, it seems like J Jerome Powell has kind of been, you know, steadily, you know, increasing interest rates. Uh, obviously, he started off very rapidly. It seemed like the market was kind of calling for a pivot at some point this year, but it seems like the market has kind of flipped on that and now is waiting for, you know, a pivot next year uh, around like, uh, I believe, like June or July or sometime, sometime around then. Um, but... Uh, one of the metrics that Jerome Powell kind of has has cited that he's he's looking at is not only like CPI and inflation and other things like that, but it's it's also the jobs report that jobs have been you know kind of extremely strong so far. Um, well, we had a jobs report come out uh, you know just uh, the other day here, the Jolts report, 
where there was an actual of, you know, eight, 8.827 million jobs where there was uh, an estimation major of major downward revision. Yeah. Yeah. There was a major downward revision in that. So, you know, I guess, how do you view the overall job market right now? Do you kind of see this as, as par for the course or, you know, as, as there is kind of a big miss, do you think that this might maybe make the Fed change their tune, so to speak? Yeah, so the, there's a major economic debate right now around the so-called Phillips curve, whether there is a relationship uh, between the labor market conditions and inflation or better. I mean, it's basically unemployment rate versus inflation, but, but really think of it as labor market tightness um, versus inflation and whether one leads to the other or in order for inflation to correct, we need a correction in labor markets. And, and I think that... Uh, mentality is still pervasive at the Fed. It's it's something that's very hard to shake. It, it goes all the way back to the time of uh, Paul Volcker, in terms of his um, policies that that ultimately, well, some would debate that they haven't, but 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 in hindsight, that that you know the major interest rate hikes that occurred in the late '80s to slay double-digit inflation were a result of those policies. But but uh, another way to look at the JOLTS report and this relationship between employment and inflation is the so-called beverage curve, which instead of looking at the unemployment rate, you're looking at jobs opening rate. And the jobs opening rate versus inflation also kind of shows a similar relationship in that, you know, a high uh, JOLTS or a, or a high um, higher rate is indicative of a tight labor market and a low rate is vice versa. Well, we've seen that open rate decline and um, but it's still at pretty elevated levels especially when you compare it to other beverage curves that look at like the pre-pandemic period from 2010 and then the period before 2010 which is how i've seen the beverage curve displayed um, even though we're seeing a slowdown in the latest jolts report and we've seen a, de a decline in the quit rate and the in the high open rate. It, it feels like jobs um, are are the job market is is becoming a bit looser, and that should in turn take pressure off the wage growth. We're still at elevated levels in this post-pandemic period than what we observed pre-pandemic. So if I'm the Fed, I'm Jerome Powell. Yes, I see labor market conditions softening. That's a good sign. That means it takes the pressure off of, for instance, having to hike again in November or December. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the Fed is ready to cut rates, even if we start to see the labor market soften further or headline inflation to come down further. I think the Fed has made it very clear that they're very close to reaching that terminal rate, uh, which is right now at 5.5%. If the November, if if we were to see a November rate hike, it would take it to five and three quarters. Right now, it appears that the base case is for five and a half. Um, but the Fed governors, even the more dovish ones, have emphasized that that this terminal rate, this five and a half rate, is going to prevail for quite some time. Um, when we see the first rate cut remains to be seen, but it's projected that the Fed will start cutting rates sometime in the spring of uh, 2024. Yeah, and it, it seems like you know that that might al almost be a little a little late in a sense um, because you know it, it seems like everything ha kind of has a delayed reaction. Um, you know, obviously everybody can play Monday morning quarterback in that kind of aspect of things, but you know, as we're kind of you know projecting a recession potentially like later half of next year, 
you know, is it kind of, I guess, a, a, almost like a predetermined kind of thing at this point? Or is there something that you could see could potentially happen in order to, uh, you know, maybe create some sort of soft landing or anything like that? So the reason why everyone is so skeptical of a soft landing scenario, which is understandable, is, is that because typically what sends the economy over the edge, what causes labor markets to weaken, isn't something that's gradual. It's something that's sudden. So markets don't take the stairs on the way down, even if they take the stairs on the way up. Uh, typically, they drop. Um, they, they drop off the elevator. And similarly with labor market conditions, whenever you see unemployment rise, it's generally not gradual. It's a hockey stick. Uh, and that's because typically some, it's typically some exogenous event hits the markets in a way that causes a sudden slowdown. And then that sudden slowdown feeds on itself uh, as businesses take their signals from the markets, um, from what they're hearing from, from their sales managers and so forth. You, you suddenly just kind of see things hit the brakes uh, and it kind of comes out of nowhere. So that's why recession calls have been notoriously difficult to make is because generally something that causes a recession or causes to pushes the economy into an outright contraction usually comes out of nowhere. So what the Fed is doing with the with rate hikes, uh, there's this long and variable lag as Milton Friedman uh, once quipped, is, is that it's affecting borrowers at the margin. And borrowers at the margin, whether it's subprime, whether it's uh, tier B or tier C uh, office real estate, commercial real estate, um, whether it's high yield borrowers, they're finding credit conditions tightening, making it harder for them to refinance their debt, making it more expensive to refinance their debt. That in turn eventually makes its way up the credit food chain. Well, we've not seen that yet. If you're a tier A borrower, if you're a prime borrower, uh, then yes, your borrowing costs are, are, are more expensive, but you're still able to handle it because of your finances, because of your income, because of your uh, uh, revenue sales coverage. Um, you meet all the covenants of, of a prime borrower. And so um, the Fed probably feels that their rates are having some effect on financial conditions. And they see it in terms of the feedback they get from senior loan officer uh, surveys on tightening uh, lending standards. But at the same time, it's not been enough to really push the economy over the edge. I think, again, you generally need to have some kind of exogenous shock to do that uh, or some sort of hit to the financial system, a systemic hit to the financial system, which many I thought was going to take place with the regional banking crisis in March or the UK guilt sell-off from September of last year. Um, but so far, you know, we've really not seen any major candidate to, to, to cause or, or push uh, the economy over the edge. Yeah, I gotcha. And that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but, you know, the, the things that are kind of correlated here, you know, I brought up jobs, um, you know, brought up the Fed and kind of like this potential of, you, you know, the soft landing, why, why people kind of don't, uh, you know, maybe subscribe to that theory. But I feel like it all kind of revolves around the consumer. Um, you know, with consumer spending and that kind of aspect of things. Well, you know, as like the job openings are kind of, you know, taking a little hit, um, things like that, it, it seems like the consumer, there's a lot of cracks potentially under the surface. Uh, and I'd like to he hear your opinion on this, but, you know, you're, you're seeing credit card debt, you know, kind of increase at a rapid pace. 
personal savings kind of go go pretty low. Um, and, uh, you know, student loan repayments still kind of haven't really opened up to hit the, those floodgates. So, you know, in your eyes, are, are these sort of some metrics that, that worry you when it comes to the, the consumer and, uh, you know, that kind of potentially going forward? Yeah. So when you look at delinquency rates, whether it's credit card, auto loans, 30 day, 60 day, 90 day, they point, they do show a worrisome trend. Um, but when you look at it, that trend, you know, over the long term, pre and post pandemic levels, we're basically at pre pandemic levels on delinquencies. The 90 days is a bit more concerning, but even there you have to dig within the cohorts between, you know, less than prime borrowers versus prime borrowers. Um, but overall delinquencies are showing what I would, what, what I would s suggest is, is normalization. Um, if you kind of normalize uh, around pre, uh, pre versus post COVID levels of 2020. So it's not worrisome in the sense that, that the, that financial stress is really starting to build up more so than, than what we've seen in prior cycles. Um, it is building up, as I said, you know, that, that variable and long lag is first uh, making its way showing up in um, uh, borrowing conditions for those that are most financially vulnerable, I would say. And, um, and, and so that is starting to make its way through um, the delinquency data that, that we're seeing here. But overall, when you take into account, you know, strong labor market conditions, continued uh, strong wage growth of 4 to 5%, when you have uh, savers earning 4 to 5% net interest um, on their savings, um, there, there's still quite a bit of income, what I would call sort of nominal income tailwinds that, that are helping to at least um, uh, for the U.S. consumer to maintain their overall spending and service their debt. Maybe what you see at the margin is less discretionary spending, maybe a, a, a greater emphasis or focus on spending for essentials. You're certainly starting to see that with core goods consumption, uh, durable goods consumption. Uh, even though services remains pretty resilient. And, um, and so at, at the very least, the uh, cracks are starting to surface with um, the, the U.S. consumer. But, I mean, we just got the second quarter GDP uh, print coming in, and personal consumption is still running at a healthy 1.7%, 1.8% annualized rate. Yeah, and it does seem like the consumer, you know, although there are some cracks as of right now, it stands that they, it is pretty, I guess, healthy in a sense, but it is kind of worrisome trend going forward, which has, you know, a lot of people worried about the potential of a, of a recession down the line. But, you know, we've kind of gone over the consumer, you know, jobs reports and other things like that. You know, we, we've kind of seen a lot of the headlines of the big major companies uh, kind of laying off a lot of people, you know, whether it's tech. You know, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Meta, whatever, you know, uh, Twitter, obviously, as well. Um, but, you know, it, it seems like everybody has kind of bounced back and been able to find jobs, uh, you know, within the next three to six ish months after being laid off. And a lot of those jobs are, are small businesses, you know, with, when it comes to this kind of environment, um, you know, with your experience and kind of helping with, with businesses, you know, how do you see that the differences, I guess, you know, with potentially of, opening and starting a business, like kind of going through that hiring process, 
uh, now opposed to, you know, maybe five, six years ago when it, when it was that low interest rate environment? Are you going to see, I guess, maybe small businesses hurt a little bit more than maybe some of the big guys? Or, um, you know, is it more so on a sector by sector kind of basis? Well, not just sector by sector, but region by region, locale by locale. Uh, industry type by industry type. I mean, right now I would say that the, the the market labor market probably looks a little bit more balanced. So if you're a small business and you're looking for um, admin and 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 mid level mid office type of support, you you probably won't struggle to find uh, workers. What 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 ultimately you need to pay them in terms of not just salary but in terms of benefits as well. That has certainly gone up. Uh, since the pandemic, but that's being passed through right now in terms of uh, final charge of, of, of services or, or, or products. Um, when you look at the overall profit margins for U.S. companies, certainly larger companies are enjoying uh, profit advantages, uh, profit margin advantages more so than, say, smaller businesses. Um, but you would you would it would suggest that maybe the, the the markets at least for hiring are a bit more balanced. There are some concerns about uh, cost squeezes at, at the margin. I mean, we have seen bankruptcy filings uh, start to pick up here in terms of uh, a number of bankruptcy filings. Um, but but I would say that so far at least the jolts data, the uh, the services components of the PMI surveys still point towards a, a relatively, I would say maybe a cautious growth outlook, uh, certainly not the gangbuster uh, supply constrained type of environment that, we're, that, that has pervaded much of the post-COVID period. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, we had the post-COVID like run up as you kind of have described right there, right? I mean, but we, we've kind of been floating along, but if you look at, you know, I guess the averages, uh, you know, the S&P 500 has been seemingly kind of carried by like seven-ish type of uh, companies, right? Magnificent seven, yep. <laughs> yep, exactly. But it's still, I mean, it makes the S&P 500, I think, like up to up 17-ish percent year to date. So statistically speaking, this is still a very strong year as, as a stock market. Is it just because you think that those seven companies are just carrying just a massive weight? Or do you think that there's still kind of some strength when it comes to the overall market uh, when, when, you know, we have a lot of these kind of uncertain factors underneath the surface? Yeah, I mean, I mean, part of this is the run up in the in the what I would call sort of the top heavy components of the indices like uh, the S&P or even the NASDAQ is 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 partly rational in the sense that when you look at the underlying estimate revisions, which bottomed out in February, um, they started to go up rapidly as uh, ma major tech company after company started reporting their numbers and, and basically pointing towards more uh, of a positive outlook, more of a positive landscape. And then you add on to that the um, potential secular growth opportunities of generative AI, uh, large language models uh, that require a lot of processing, a lot of computing power, as well as uh, cloud network support um, that, that when you look at estimate revisions, um, it's mainly being driven by those call it magnificent seven or, or, or major contributor top heavy contributors to the indices. So yes, in the way the, 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 the advance that we've seen this year in us equities has been one of the most narrowly driven 
that we've seen this year, but uh, part of that, I think, is because uh, analysts, uh, investors are most optimistic on those top uh, uh, heavy components because they're the ones that are driving the higher estimate, higher forward-looking estimate revisions. Gotcha. Well, I, I kind of want to go into the analyst aspects of things as well, because it seems like, you know, earnings, ha like there was kind of the narrative that there's going to be a quote unquote earnings recession coming up like sometime this year. And that was kind of the narrative going around FinTwit, so to speak. But, you know, analysts kind of prepare for those kind of things. So, uh, you know, essentially they lower their expectations and that allows companies to kind of beat that expectations, which allows the stock to kind of run up, so to speak. So, um, you know, how have you been kind of viewing like earnings reports as things have gone along this year, right? Where uh, I guess in the middle of Q3 here now, uh, but, you know, what do you see as like, I guess, the overall earnings? Are you seeing potential, um, I guess, cracks in the surface when it comes to some of these major like pop seven and just like kind of bigger name companies in the S&P? Or, you know, are you still kind of seeing I guess, steady earnings and, uh, you know, because the consumer still is showing some strength and uh, kind of still spending as it is. Yeah, no, I think, you know, say what you will about Wall Street research, um, but they take their cues from company management. Um, not to say that any non-public information is passed between uh, management and, and Wall Street analysts, but I mean, what you, many of the sort of the investor relations um, roadmap is to basically communicate through formal presentations at conferences or one-on-one -on -one meetings and so forth, kind of a sort of a general outlook or, you know, kind of where the opportunities are, where some challenges are starting to build up, you know, kind of more at the high level. So if we were to start to see earnings weakness um, make their way through estimates, it's, it's going to come from management because they're on the front lines. But we're not seeing that right now. We're seeing it in pockets. Certainly, there there's some areas like in consumer discretionary, for instance, some high-profile uh, earnings misses related to uh, slowdown in spending, um, more stress, uh, more stressful credit conditions, uh, issues dealing with shrinkage and and theft and so forth. But um, but for the most part, if you were to see the earnings picture start to deteriorate it's going to make its way through the estimate revisions eventually. And we're not seeing that right now. And that's because company managements for the most part, aren't seeing that deterioration in demand right now, even if some of the broader economic uh, signals, particularly the soft data surveys like PMI are, are pointing towards a slowdown. I mean, you're not, you're not seeing it necessarily in terms of a sales projection or even in uh, profit margins and so forth, despite higher, uh, operating costs. So I believe Faxet is still uh, Faxet, uh, is still penciling in about 10 to 11% earnings growth for 2024. Um, it was expected that earnings would decline this year, um, but I think now they're, they're projected to be flat for the S&P 500. Uh, but much of that will depend on how the fourth quarter shakes out because much of the earnings growth uh, that takes place is typically uh, in, in the fourth quarter. Um, so if, if, uh, it, the second half here is, is going to need to do much of the heavy lifting from an earning standpoint, um, but we're not seeing any kind of, um, deceleration or, uh, of that momentum that, that has occurred since February in terms of analyst projections, uh, for forward earnings. 
Gotcha. Well, you know, it, it that, that does make a lot of sense. And obviously, you know, Q4 around the holidays, that's going to be a lot of consumer spending and a, a lot of aspects that that can that can dramatically affect, you know, the market and the overall like year kind of uh, numbers, so to speak. So um, but, you know, as as there is difficulty in, you know, a potential recession, um, you know, that you believe that potentially could happen in the next, second half of next year. Um, you know, with all the things going on, right? I mean, obviously, we have Russia, Ukraine, that kind of situation. We have a lot of different aspects of things. Usually, there's a potential sector that does really well, um, you know, when it kind of comes to, uh, you know, recessions, downturns, that kind of thing. Is there a specific sector that you're kind of looking at keeping a close eye on? Um, you know, obviously, like defense spending comes to mind. But is there anything like kind of unique that you think, you know, maybe might prosper in a, in a time of, of uh, you know, the uncertainty that we're in? Yeah, I mean, typically, from a macro standpoint, we, uh, from, if you're looking at sector positioning, it's, it's cyclical versus defensive financials and REITs are kind of in their own category. If you think we're going to see a major slowdown, where there's going to be less capital spending, there's going to be less discretionary spending, then you hide out in the defensive sectors. And those defective, defensive sectors typically are utilities, consumer staples, and healthcare. Um, if you think we're in a, sort of a risk-on, pro-cyclical environment, then you want to be in the cyclicals. And that's pretty much industrials, late cyclicals like energy and materials. That includes uh, not just raw materials, but chemicals, uh, transportation, and then, of course, you have technology, uh, which increasingly is being viewed as acyclical, meaning that it, that the, that there are secular drivers of spending, whether it's on software as a service, cloud, uh, now generative AI, um, it, and technology is being sort of increasingly viewed as as um, secular to the uh, typical business cycle. But um, the it, as I said, I think the market is trying to maybe sniff out um, a slowdown, and we and we certainly seen that this past week or so, starting with the jolts data. Um, but it's not indicating a contraction, and I think um, if there is a contraction, where it's probably going to get first sniffed out um, is going to be in the bond market than the equities. That's historically been the case. Uh, it's not always you know guaranteed to. Uh, take place in the future, but but if if there's a major financial stress starting to build up, and you want to be defensively positioned, then then you'll see that signal show up in bonds, whether it's in the um, uh, interest rate overall interest rate levels or whether it's in uh, corporate credit spreads. Um, you'll see it there first, then then and the equities uh, eventually will 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 confirm or not confirm. Uh, the slowdown that's being projected in the bond market, um, but from a sector standpoint, if you're if you're concerned and you want to be more defensively positioned and and don't necessarily want to raise cash, then then maybe you focus more on those defensive sectors. Yeah, and you know that 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 makes a lot of sense. But it, it's interesting you bring up bonds because I, I want to hear like I guess your overall opinion on on like how that that yeah area of investing has kind of developed over your time uh, because you know. Five, 10 years ago, there was basically the narrative that the 60-40 portfolio was kind of dead because of, you know, the, the no interest rate environment. You could basically throw, uh, you know, a dart at the board and get, you know, three or four different uh, letters and pick a stock and it's going up. 
Um, you know, we famously had the Davey Dave trader, Dave Portnoy kind of doing that on, on Twitter. And a lot of people were just kind of like having fun with that during COVID as well. Um, but, you know, bonds are kind of meant for this kind of time, a lot of uncertainty. It's kind of like a safe bet, like you said. So you think it's going to be kind of, I, I guess, more of a resurgence in that sense? Or, you know, do you think that because so many people kind of got into this, you know, investing environment during, uh, you know, the COVID and kind of everything goes up sort of time that, you know, maybe maybe some newer investors might get a little burnt when, uh, when, it, when it comes to, to this, I guess, potential downturn? Yeah, no, now that we're off the zero bound for interest rates and uh, who knows how long we'll be. Um, but if, if in fact, the new normal for interest rates is not zero bound, but something close to the two to 3% uh, nominal, maybe 1% real um, that uh, pervaded much before the, the uh, 2008 financial crisis, then all of a sudden bonds now um, make sense when you're doing cross-asset valuation. Um, so equities now, have now no longer have the luxury of being able to rate off a zero rate environment. Um, they actually have to compete with bonds for, for capital and asset allocation. That's not to say that equity still can't get rich versus bonds. One can argue they're rich right now, but they could also get richer. Um, we saw during, for instance, the 1999 internet.com uh, mania that, that the uh, forward earnings or the trailing earnings yield for the S&P 500 dipped well below that of the two-year treasury yield. We've not seen that happen for, well, since, since 1999. We're starting to see that today. So it's not to say that, that equities can't get richer versus bonds, but um, bonds, I think, uh, with a positive nominal yield and certainly a positive real rate uh, inflation-adjusted yield is going to act more on a – would presumably act as more of a gravitational pull on equities. And so now that 60-40 portfolio or that 60-40 you know, mindset of allocating capital between equities and bonds becomes relevant again now that interest rates are positive as opposed to being at the zero bound. Yeah, and it seems like that's going to kind of continue as as more of like the interest rate environment kind of goes up, right? I mean, you're seeing more benefit to be in, in bonds than, than anything else. Well, um, but before, you know, you, you've kind of projected out the potential recession for the back half of next year, but we're kind of in the middle here of Q3 with Q4. Uh, so I want to hear your, your market outlook before I, before I let you go for the rest of the year. Are you bullish? Are you bearish? Do you think that we're going to kind of, I guess, crab walk to the end of the year? Like, how do you see this all? playing out uh we're gonna crab walk is is my my estimate you know um granted a lot of what i do is is i take cues from what the market is signaling and the market is always a good sort of barometer on what it expects at the moment uh, a good case in point is fed funds futures which project what it thinks the fed is going to do on the uh, forward rate curve going out a year or so um it can fluctuate and during the height of the bank banking uh, stress in March, it was projected that the Fed would have started cutting rates by the second half of this year in response to that stress. Well, that obviously isn't the case right now. In fact, if, uh, just after Jackson Hole, it was projected that the Fed was then going to raise rates again based on uh, its interpretation of Fed Chair Powell's remarks that they were going to raise rates again in November, December. Uh, but that all said, 
uh, right now the the market is is sort of less indicating um, um, a crab walk from here um, based on more on valuations than um, on 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 sentiment um, and and so you know equity markets even though they are being bolstered by uh, robust forward earnings projections and and certainly an outlook that is somewhat predicated on the Fed eventually easing uh, by the spring of next year the, the one could argue that valuations have, have basically reflect all that and so basically you need the E of the price earnings ratio to catch up with the P and uh, and so as long as the E continues to move higher then then the market can grow into their valuations and we can you know basically crab walk uh, for the remainder of the year in bonds you're earning a compelling four to five percent on investment grade depending on how uh, further down the credit spectrum you're willing to go but uh, that's pretty compelling uh, especially if uh, the market is correct in projecting lower forward inflation uh, with the year ahead um, now that sort of the most difficult month-to-month uh, -month period releases are behind us from 2022 um, and we're seeing uh, decelerating trends across much of the uh, CPI and PCE uh, components and you take into account the fact that the shelter component of inflation is lagging. Um, we're looking at very compelling real inflation adjusted interest rates at these levels. So um, it's just a matter of kind of holding to kind of a plain vanilla uh, equity uh, bond mix for your sort of moderate to conservative investor. Um, and and pick where you think are the, the most sort of compelling opportunities, where you think it's going to be more in the small cap side in U.S. or internationally with uh, international markets once again having lagged the U.S. Uh, so far this year. Yeah, that's all great stuff. So, Ben, you've been very generous with your time today, so I really appreciate you coming on the show. Why don't you tell people where they can find you and, uh, yeah, where they can learn what you got going on? Sure. So, uh, I'm prolific on the social media channels, primarily LinkedIn and X, formerly Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is Benjamin M. Levine. And um, also, uh, you can find our written content, and we also publish our own podcast called the Advisor Success Series Podcast, where we will interview investment professionals and get their take on the markets. Uh, our website is 3dlfinancial.com. And you can find our podcast series uh, on, on our website, uh, link to that, or you can find it on many of the podcast marketplaces like uh, Apple, iTunes, and Google Play. Awesome stuff. And I'll put all that in the show notes so everybody can check that out. So Ben, thanks so much, man. Thank you for having me.